Well, hello everyone. It's a Friday. I'm sitting in a dark room looking out over a very wet garden. So rather than address the crippling problems in my life that have led me to do this once again, uh, instead I'm going to record a podcast. So good morning. I hope you're well and I hope you're enjoying your coffee. I am, and believe me, it's needed, because if I had any sense, I would be back in bed. But instead, because early mornings are pretty much the one time I can guarantee a quiet room, really, to sit down and record, and, you know, it wouldn't be, you know, the title would be inaccurate if I recorded any time in the afternoon, but hey, you know, it's a day off work, I'm here, I've got my coffee, you know, it's good to get back into the swing of things after some disruption, because it's been a busy few weeks. Uh, this week in particular, I mean, I, the reason I'm tired, the reason I would uh, and probably should still be in bed, is that I spent uh, a couple of days at a conference up in Nottingham with work. And seeing as the only reason I normally go to uh, a convention centre, the normal reason I mingle with lots of people in a large air-conditioned hall is uh, for comics it was a nice uh, change of pace to see how the other half live. I mean I work in education in my day job as an editor and um, yeah it was our annual conference. I'm trying to trying to dance around the actual name of the company for uh, I don't know in the rare event that anything controversial I say in the podcast trickles its way back to work. Uh, but uh, yeah, higher education was the name of the game, and uh, clearly a higher class of convention centre, and indeed hotel, than the average comic convention. I don't believe I've skating such luxury for a long time. The um, we normally uh, when we do conventions, we uh, we either crash if it's a London one, we either crash on a very in a very friendly apartment. Uh, to try and save some money, or we uh, stay in the Ibis budget, uh, which is probably the most glamorous of hotels uh, you can imagine. I don't, I don't know, actually, we give it a bit of a, you know, we joke about it, but actually it's perfectly fine. It's just it's just functional. It's just basic and functional, and it's clean, you know, and you get a breakfast. I mean, what more could you want? So you get a bunk bed, you get a little shower unit, you get a sink, often in very close proximity to one another. One another. If you want really grim, you should uh, try a Formula Un. Because we, um, um, again, tangent now, but we uh, we used to go stay in the Ibis budget in Silvertown whenever we went to London, uh, the Excel Centre, whenever we went to an MCM event or a London Super Comic Con event, although that has now moved. And... Um, it was like it was quite convenient. It was maybe like a mile walk from the venue. Uh, it was lovely. It was even quite affordable, you know. And so I started up in their prices. But when that started filling up earlier and earlier, we uh, we had to look out further afield, and so we would stay in the Ibis budget barking, which was maybe five or so miles down the road, and we had to hop in the car to get there. Still, you know, fairly convenient, not too far away. And uh, this one time, that was full as well. Like, we really uh, dropped the ball on finding affordable hotels. But it just so happened that there was a hotel just next door to the Ibis budget. Shared a car park. 
called the Formule Un, the Formula One. And we found out that uh, it's actually owned by the same group of hotels, the Ibis uh, Global Corporation. And um, if the Ibis budget is budget, the Formula Un is triple budget because there's no reception. You just let yourself in and out. In fact, they were like, if you have any questions, please go next door to the Ibis budget. I seem to be in the process of demolishing it while we were there. So you kind of, I seem to remember there was something weird about the door. Like you had to kind of just slam, slam against it to get it to open. And you go in, you go to a room and it was really grotty. I mean, kind of like subpar kind of uh, student accommodation. And I have stayed in some horrible pits in the, down the years. And uh, probably the worst part was the communal kind of toilets. Obviously, you didn't, you had like a little sink in your room, but you didn't have a toilet and you certainly didn't have a shower. And they were all down the corridor. But because everything is pod-based, I think the idea is that the uh, the hotels are modular. They can be built anywhere in any kind of combination and they just slot these preformed plastic rooms in where required. So you like you go down the corridor and there's a whole row of um, doors. And these doors are open into, as I said, kind of like vacuum-formed plastic bubbles. You go in, it's just a cavity with a toilet and a little sink in. And when you finished on the toilet and you shut the door, the whole room flushes. As in, not just the toilet, uh, a vent opens in the ceiling and water just sluices down everything. It was a similar pod situation for the shower. There was a, um, oh good grief, there was like a, you go into this weird pod unit and there's like a curved wall to separate the water from the door. And there was like a hand dryer just bolted at about head height, which uh, I think was intended to be used to dry your hair, which indeed, which indeed I did out of desperation. There was also a razor next to it, which I'm hoping wasn't the communal shaver. But no, it was very surreal. I think it was that weekend where we were leaving, probably in a state of mild hysteria because we just couldn't believe the place we were staying in. And... Um, I think we passed, it was, you know, that one of those things where you're like, am I hallucinating? Is is, is this real? And it was a uh, legitimate 18th century stereotypical gypsy matriarch walking down the corridor with a uh, headscarf and hoop earrings and everything and then disappeared around a corner. So, you know, it could have been, uh, it could have been an actual inhabitant of a hotel, could have, well, just been some kind of horror induced visual impairment I remember we were also loading our stuff into the car that day and um, we heard like a thud and suddenly this guy came barreling somersaulting over the fence next to us landed quite hard on the ground ripped off his jumper and then just legged it just disappeared off into uh, into the world and we think because we backed onto a Tesco's he was like a shoplifter who'd just done some spectacular parkour to escape and we know because there are a few security guards chasing him. But anyway, I digress. Um, from the conference this week, I was travelling on uh, my employer's dime, which was nice. And a team of us went up. I uh, wore a suit, which uh, hasn't happened in a little while. 
It was rather embarrassing because once again I found that my waistline has fluctuated somewhat and uh, the smart trousers I have do not quite fit me as well as I used to. So instead I went with the secondary suit, which was actually given to me by Nick and Ali for the purposes of wearing at their wedding, and they have forgiven me for wearing it in advance. But if it's, I think it bodes well for their wedding because of the whole two days, everyone was saying, that's a really nice suit. And it was. The only problem was I had one of those really smart new shirts and it just rubbed my neck raw. I mean, don't get me wrong, I absolutely love a suit. I mean, if you've read any of my comics, you'd get that impression from the character designs. I love a suit. It's iconic. It's stylish. But I, I have a thing. like I hate things around my neck. I think it went back to when I was a, a kid and uh, they used to, your parents used to dress you for primary school and they'd, you know, put that shirt on you because we had to wear shirt and ties at primary school and they'd put the shirt and tie on you and you always felt like you were being throttled. And ever since I have like a weird... It's not quite a phobia. It just really kind of turns my stomach when things are too tight or scratchy around my neck. I can't stand labels or anything remotely uncomfortable. But yeah, by the end of day one, I just had these two bright red stripes going down my neck. Despite having tried to prime the shirts in advance, I just, I don't know, I need to reassess my options. I wonder if there's uh, a supplier on the high street who deals with soft, doughy men who can't handle anything rough. Um... But yeah, I, you know, got to dress up for for an occasion, which was nice. I got to be charming and interact with people. I carried a laptop and my smartphone all weekend, which made me feel very important as we did social media and the like. And yeah, I got to stay in the lap of luxury. I feel following Lucy and mine, Lucy and I, uh, we had our trip to Denmark tail end of last year. And... I, I think after that one brief trip to Copenhagen, I'm suddenly an authority on Danish art, um, what do you call it, uh, interior design, because uh, I was able to walk into the hotel room, which was really nice. I had a hotel room all to myself. I was like, I'm going to savour this, because crying out loud, we can't afford this normally. And uh, I was like, oh, Danish architecture, or Danish design. They had like a weird um, uh, tree, for lack of a better word, like a... Uh, just a vertical wooden pillar, uh, independent of any wall, uh, with, uh, it looked like one of those Kung Fu training dummies, obvious training trees with the weird branches sticking out at odd angles. And it's a thing we noticed in uh, Denmark, where you'll have like a central lamp hanging from a ceiling to light your room. But the cable is actually about four metres long, like you know, to an order of magnitude, more cable than you would need. And I believe the idea is that you then have hooks located around the room and you move the lamp where you want it to go, which I think ties into the Danish phenomenon of higgy, which I think I'm pronouncing right, which is very hard to translate, but I believe the closest word is cosy. I think uh, if you ask uh, anyone, uh, if you ask a Dane to explain it, they'll look a little confused. Could be like, um, I don't know, I can't think. It'd be like uh, explaining, uh, uh, trying to get a UK person to explain Anton Deck, and um, they go, "Oh, it's just always there," and you know, everybody knows what it means, even if it doesn't make any objective sense. And uh, yeah, this uh, this weird kind of pillar, wooden branch tree thing in the corner of a room, it had a very long cabled lamp just wrapped around it. Needless, but it was quite nice.
And oh yeah, and also one wall was a massive, a massive photo of a wooded glade. So yeah, it was a lap of luxury. I quite enjoyed it. But of course, by the end of day two, when we were all packing up and everyone was getting ready to leave and we'd finally shown all the delegates out. I mean, the aforementioned shirt had now just carved a, a groove into my neck and I was like, I need to, I need to, I need to deal with this. So I went back upstairs, took the offending shirt off, switched to a t-shirt. And the only t-shirt I brought with me because I'm so organized was an Overwatch t-shirt, put the glowing blue suit back on and head back downstairs looking like a off-duty rock star slash scumbag or like, you know, a time traveler from the 80s. But you know what? I was actually kind of proud. And uh, yeah, got my taxi, got my train. And I have I have um, recounted this in the last week, but I had the most amazingly uh, lovely experience on the... Uh, the ride home on the train. You had to, it was one of those weird things where you're physically tired as opposed to just mentally. Like I know like in the last couple of weeks with the amount of work we've been doing, both Big Punch related and in the day job preparing for this big event, event, I'd just been feeling like, you know, a bit fried. You know, I'd get to the end of the day and my back would really be hurting. And, you know, you feel like, your brain's just wrapped in cotton wool. You just want to collapse or have a beer and collapse. And after all that build-up, after all that work, I had kind of been dreading this event this week. I was thinking, oh God, I cannot imagine anything worse than having to get out there and be on point and just kind of interact with people. I I, I don't know. And, you know, talk on a subject I'm not uh, massively familiar with. But uh, actually, it had gone really well. And... Clearly, I didn't need time off. I needed more to do, or rather more to do that I was in control of. And yeah, I felt invigorated. I felt kind of like just pumped and relaxed because it was all over, all that hard work it paid off. And I now had a comfy t-shirt on as opposed to the the garrote I had around my neck before. And um, yeah, got a taxi and the sun was shining. It was just the most beautiful, cloudless day you could imagine. And one of those weird days where we were gliding along in the taxi, you've got that nice buzz on of physical tiredness, but it's a good tiredness because you know, you know you've just given your body a workout and there are no responsibilities for the next day and you can just relax. So we're gliding along in the taxi. The taxi driver doesn't really want to talk, which is great because I'm just fried in a good way. And so I'm just watching the world go by and you know, Nottingham, actually, is a very pretty city. I was quite impressed. What little I saw from a taxi window. And we're just gliding along, and it's warm, and the window's open. And it's one of those weird occasions where you're like... Those weird altered states of reality where you're like, just for the right amount of caffeine, and tired, and pleased. And you're like, am I, you know... For all I know, this I could be dead right now. This is the way my brain works, clearly. This could be like some weird, twisted peaceful afterlife because it's very calm right now and the whole world seems to be moving through a glaze of honey <laughs> just kind of golden and wonderful and uh, it's either that or the closing reel the closing montage reel of a movie and we get to the station you know all on time I've got a coffee 
I grab my train, the sun is shining, and we all get packed into this carriage. And it was a surprisingly busy one. Like, we're all filing in, and, you know, I, I sit down at a table. I'm the only one at the table, and then, of course, people, you know, are, are looking for seats. So I'm shuffling around to make room for people. And this guy sits down opposite me, and he's about four times the size of me. And I mean just, like, muscles upon muscles. Um, great big, like, sleeve tattoos and stuff. We kind of, like, nod at each other, and we're both crammed in and just doing our best to keep out of people's way and then um a girl sits down next to him opposite me and she looks maybe like a student maybe like 18 or so so we're a real kind of unlikely bunch like me looking like a i don't know an 80s reject and uh yeah the the train pulls out and uh, after a few minutes uh, the girl opposite me gets out a DS and starts playing a game and I obviously can't see what she's playing because I'm opposite her and I've got my phone and I'm just checking the company Twitter you know making sure everything's all right and then the guy just go, leans over and goes what are you playing or no rather he goes what version are you playing which is telling and she goes yellow it's the best and he laughs and I start laughing and then we end up having the most amazing, spontaneous, like shameless conversation about Pokemon. And I think I don't know what it I don't know what it was. Maybe it was just a combination of the tiredness because everybody wanted to get home. Or it was just that point of the day, or just for sheer absurdity about ostensibly three adults talking about Pokemon. We are like the only people in the carriage talking, by the way. But it was just this great moment of, you know, why the hell not? You know, why be ashamed of this? Like, it, it's, it's daft, but it brings us a little bit of happiness. And right now, we're connecting with two strangers we wouldn't have otherwise done. And, uh, yeah, we just have the most lovely conversation. You know, talks about Pokemon cards, talks about the black market around them back when we were in school. You know, we talked comics. It turned out the chap opposite me. The uh, massive comic fan, uh, and also was in the army, and uh, he'd served in Afghanistan. You know, he'd never been to a he'd never been to a comic convention. I showed him some stuff from after I think I had on my phone because of course I'm a shameless huckster. And um, yeah, like his phone was broken, but I was able to write down. Um, you know, our details, and I said, you know, look us up, come to a show, they're, they're definitely worth doing. And, uh, yeah, and then we both had to get off at the same station, so we said goodbye to our Pokemon friend, he showed me to where my next station was, we shook hands and went our separate ways, and truthfully, it was a, just like a wonderful experience, like, the scars aligned, you know, sometimes it was just the right combination of people, the weather, you know, the circumstances where, you know, we had the most lovely chat. And maybe on another day, it wouldn't have happened. Maybe, you know, we all would have been a bit tired, a bit surly, and we never would have looked up. But, yeah, I'm really glad we did. It was lovely. And uh, and from then on, it was quite a reasonable, short journey home. So, yeah, that was just the icing on... Uh, the cherry on the icing, on the cake, on the plate that I'm eating. It was just, it was just lovely. It was delightful. And, yeah, so after that and after the stresses and you know work of the last few weeks because you know the day job has kind of been kicking my ass a bit it has been demanding a lot lately 
And of course, whenever it does that, that means less, well, maybe not time because, you know, it's constrained by work hours, but certainly energy for the other things I enjoy doing, the other things I love, the other things I'm working on. I think that's, I don't know. I think I strike a fairly good balance between the day job and Big Punch. I mean, obviously comics, you know, if we wanted to make money, I don't think anyone would have gone into comics. It's, it appears to be a fundamentally twisted economic model, but it feels great that, yeah, I mean, I think we're lucky, luckier than most in that Big Punch looks after itself. Big Punch is surviving. I don't know when we'll reach the step of, you know, maybe it being able to employ full time, you know, us, but for the time being, I'm very happy to have a day job. And I'm very happy to have Big Punch. And like I said, I think I strike a fairly good balance between them. It's not the time issue. I mean, I'm an early riser. Case in point, I'm here recording. So, you know, I get a lot done in the mornings. When I get back, I'm pretty disciplined, maybe even too disciplined. I get a lot of work done in the evenings as well. And I enjoy it, I think, more than anything. It would be a nightmare if it was actually something that felt like a chore. But the worst part is when you're so tired from one that it just saps you of any creative energy for doing anything else. I'd be lying if I said there weren't days like that. And it's not even the tiredness of the body because really you're just, I'm just sitting. Like ultimately I'm sitting at my desk at work. I'm sitting at home, you know, working on, working on some big punch stuff at the computer. I spend most of my life at a computer. I'm lucky that I catch the train because it means I get a 40 minute walk each day. So I'm just pouring another coffee. You may be able to hear it as the background sound effects. So, yeah, it's not a physical tiredness. It's more like a, I don't know, I don't want to say spiritual. It's just like a kind of sapping of your general willpower sometimes. But yeah, sometimes you get good days as well. And it's interesting because I feel we've suddenly had a massive upsurge in general creativity around around the house. I mean, we've been working fairly hard. Obviously, we always we always do. But it just seems to have really kicked up a notch lately. Like, um, I mentioned on an earlier podcast, but I'd made a real concentrated effort to finish off all my writing duties. So all of Extraversal, that's Cuckoo's Orb, and my contribution to 99 Swords, for the entire year is all written, which is great. Um, after I think volume four is obviously all written and the great news is that we have a a deadline for completion now, which is amazing. So the original deadline of March, uh, obviously came and went and was perhaps always a little bit optimistic, but we lost a bit of time over Christmas where, you know, I should have factored in that, you know, people have lives and people need a bit of of a holiday, obviously. And, you know, our freelancers have better things to do than to be working right across the holiday. And additionally, of course, a couple of our freelancers had other kind of emergency commitments come up, which meant they couldn't devote as much time. But thankfully, the Kickstarter crew and the Afterlife Think crew seem to have been pretty forgiving. And the good news is that we are... Well, let me see. Chapter 5 will be out at the end of this month, May. And chapter six digitally will be out at the end of June, which will also coincide with the book going 
to print. So it's only a few months behind schedule. But the great news is, is that we will have Afterlife Inc. Volume 4 Man-Made God out this summer. Which, you know, in classic timing is also around the time that we will be taking a little break from conventions because of all the flipping weddings we're doing. So the next convention we will be at uh, will be in October. So if you're not one of the Kickstarter backers and you're looking to get hold of Afterlife Inc. Volume 4, Man-Made God, uh, you will have to wait until October to see us in person if you'd like to get it in person. However, we will put it up on the store. Uh, so frankly, that just feels amazing. Like it has been the longest time since book three. Um, we were doing very well for a while. You know, we got a book out a year. And I know I'm a little hard on myself, but if you think about... And so I have to keep reminding myself, rather, that while there's been such a gap between book three and book four, in that time, we did also publish The Heavenly Chord, which was a... which is technically an afterlife graphic novel. So technically, that's a fourth. And we did The Book of Life, the hardback collected edition of books one, two, and three. And, of course, in that time, we did Sandwich Masters, and we launched BPM, now Extraversal, and we're on issue 10 of that. Um, we, uh, I often wonder whether, like, the greatest motivator for doing something is someone else saying it can't be done, which is not a new thought, but it does seem particularly uh, relevant in this case. We had one naysayer back in the day who said that a quarterly anthology publication couldn't be done. We were setting ourselves too hard a deadline and it would fail after issue two. Well, issue 10 will be going to print at the start of June for all our patrons and subscribers, and we are overjoyed to finally hit double figures. And it also means that we are well on our way towards year four, which we keep being coy about, but is going to be something kind of special. So... We are absolutely stoked about that. And we're just so happy that people are engaging with it as well. It's fantastic. We will be uh, running a... Uh, we will be bringing the collected editions of Extraversal to print uh, soon. We don't know when yet. That's a kind of a vague, amorphous soon. But it will be happening this year. But yeah, we'll be doing book one, year one, and book two, year two, a simultaneous print release. Hmm. So yeah, if you're not collecting the individual issues, do watch this space. It's going to be quite exciting. Uh, da, 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 da. Yeah, so um, Nick has been doing some amazing work on a catamaran top-down RPG in the style of Link's Awakening. I mean, one of the first things that Nick and I bonded over was our love, mutual love of kind of top-down Zelda games, like or any game of that ilk, like kind of Pokemon or Link's Awakening. I uh, The first console I ever owned was a Game Boy. Not really a console, but you know what I mean. Game Boy 1, OG. And I loved it so much. And it came with two games. It came with uh, Mario, which I'm sure purists listening will be able to inform me. I think it was like Mario Land 1 or something, like a really basic kind of Game Boy version of the classic. You know, Mushroom World... One, one. Oh, God, I'm losing all cred here. But anyway, the other game, most tellingly, was Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening. And I that game was just fantastic. I mean, it was for, for such a small cartridge, for presumably such a small game, like physically, memory-wise. 
it was it was seminal. I loved it. I loved it so much. And I swear it took me over ten years to complete because I got to like the third dungeon or something and I I just hit a wall. And my my child brain just could not progress. I just could not solve this one puzzle in a room. And so I would keep coming back to it and I would just play those first three dungeons again. I would start again or I would just play it over and over again. I would explore the world as far as I could, but of course I was limited because I just could not get any further. I saved up enough rupees to buy the bow. I think it was like 900 rupees or something. And eventually, I think it wasn't until I got to secondary school that somebody just casually explained how to solve that puzzle and went back and finally completed it. I never should have solved my Game Boy. I absolutely loved it. Yeah, hindsight. But anyway, Nick has been playing with building a catamaran RPG and it's amazing. Like what little he's done so far is just it's just astounding. Like I it takes all my boxes basically, just this weird the weird visual style, the gameplay. I I yeah, I just can't wait, basically. It's gonna be amazing. In other news, um, I guess hats off to Lucy, because Lucy is a lettering machine. She has just been powering through after I think and doing amazing work. I mean it's interesting because I mean she's she's taken this skill on in a relatively such short space of time and become very good at it. I mean she's a frighteningly quick learner and is just mastering illustrator in ways which are terrifying and profound and I feel we may have created a design monster. <laughs> but yeah, she's um, absolutely fantastic and we um yeah, and she's just powering ahead on after I think that's gonna you know, like I said, the book is taking shape as we speak, and it feels amazing. It feels so great. Like I've enjoyed working on all these other projects, but after I think is my baby, and it feels like I'm claiming back a little part of myself by finally getting this book out. I think the biggest hurdle is always is always just money. It's always just money, which is sad but true, because I wanna create books to a certain level of quality. I want to create the book kind of books that I saw on shelves growing up. I mean, I don't want to just because we're indie. I mean, this has always been a big punch motto. It's like just because you're small press, it doesn't mean you can't think big. I mean, sometimes there's an expectation of what an independent book will be. And I think sometimes that hampers us where really, you know, the power is in our hands. We can do anything we want. And yeah, the catch is, of course, as with everything, that means you need a bit more money. So Wanting to pay everyone who works on the book a fair shake means we need more money, you know. Trying to do these big, grandiose, American-style comics, you know, means you need a lot of money. I feel like I've kept flip-flopping on the model back and forth, back and forth, trying to find one that works, one that's affordable. And I think, he said, by Jove, I think it may have done it this time around. Because we've done short stories in After I Think. We've done long-form stories in After I Think. And I kind of hit this realisation where I was thinking, like, why am I still doing these 22-page chapters, these individual issues, if you will, that make up a graphic novel? Because Man Made God is made up of six of them. And I was like, why am I doing this? Like, Why am I a slave to this possibly outdated model? Because, let's face it, my books are never going to see a release as individual monthly floppies, as individual, you know, soft cover comics. Because A, 
you know, as a small company, we do not have the resources or the distribution to print the thousands of individual issues that would be needed to distribute to shops around the country. And then that's assuming that people were even interested in buying them, because if you don't have a marketing and publicity machine behind you, who's going to care? You know, you're just going to be some nobody. So graphic novels do really well. And of course, this ties into my second point, is that the industry itself has a problem where, you know, we keep selling these monthly comics when really it's for graphic novels, which have the profit, you know, the, the profit margin to really, you know, make people money, be it comic shops, be it creators. I mean, I've known friends who have actually worked on image titles, who have actually, you know, for many intents and purposes, lived the dream, if there is one in comics. And they've said how they don't make a penny on their initial work. They don't really make a penny on the being commissioned for artwork, and they don't make a penny on the sales of those softcover floppies. Except it's only when it trickles through to the graphic novel, the trade collection, that they will see a cut. It just seems so bizarre. It's like, why are we doing this? Like, why not just have the same amount of pages that makes up a graphic novel? You know, have a hundred page story. You don't have to have like four 25 page chapters. So yeah, so with Man Made God, Man Made God is kind of like the last, I don't know, the last book we'll do, which is built around that format. Most exciting thing is I've started work on After I Think Volume 5. And it feels great because I think now we've hit that sweet, or I certainly feel like we've hit that sweet middle point where it's going to be, because people always praised the early books for being anthologies, for being like this mashup of like lots of stories of different lengths with different art teams. And I feel that has always been the spirit of After I Think. While we've had a few major artists who've returned for longer arcs, like it's always been an ensemble piece. Like we've always had a team of people making it great. So I'm just watching a squirrel clean its tail. Not in the kitchen, it's out in the garden. We have the most amazingly parkouring squirrel in our garden. It's fantastic. It keeps coming back. Oh, there it goes. Yep. I love squirrels. Uh, sorry, um, dog has a fluffy tail, attention span. Um, yeah, and uh, ensemble piece of different con contributors. And they all bring something different. And they all bring their own take and artistic flair on the character. I mean, a classic example would be the evolution of Lux is visual style. Like the first artwork that was ever done of Lux. Oh, good grief. I think it was by a Canadian artist called Jamie Boylan. Oh, God, that's embarrassing. That's really bad. I commissioned him back in the day to draw my characters. And as per my original design, she was quite... Uh, she was literally jet black, as in her skin had no definition. I think that was part of my idea. I wanted it to be that she, her skin would absorb all light. So she would just be like a living shadow, like a cutout. And there'd be no shading or shadow or reflection or anything. And gradually, as every artist has had their own interpretation, I'll be honest with you, maybe I could have been stricter on the style bible, but I just loved their interpretation. And I loved the fact they would take the character in that direction. And like, even if it wasn't what I originally pictured, I'm like, 
that's so cool that you cared enough to do that, then let's just run with it. So you gradually see an evolution in Lux's appearance where she's become, as Lucy's pointed out, less androgynous and less heavily built and more obviously female. And her skin has become like it's made of scars. And I just think that's amazing because I never asked for it. I never planned for it. It just kind of happened. And I'm like, you know what? I do not have the heart to correct you because what you have come up with is just awesome. It's the same with Jack's eyes. I mean, I can't take credit for that. But Ash, when he first... In that first kind of the lost chapter of After I Think, which I released as a, um, which I released as a, uh, a special feature when we did the Book of Life Kickstarter, the now non-canon issue zero, which showed Jack's death, which believe me is not actually how it happens now in canon, was uh, Jack as uh, Ash did the most amazing little quirk where you don't notice it the first time you read it, but when Jack's alive his eyes are blue, and then in the afterlife, his eyes are golden. And it's, such, it's so amazing, because I, don't, I never specified that. And Ash just made it his own and did that, and we just created it, continued with it ever since. And I, just, I love that kind of stuff, because it makes the characters seem a bit more alive. It's like they have a life of their own. It's like they're evolving in new and weird ways. So, in the spirit of having lots of different eyes looking at it in the spirit of having lots of different people offering their creative input book five is going to be a uh, an anthology piece once again and it's going to be a combination of longer chapters so we will have longer stories a la a kind of like an american style issue and but between them we're also going to have these short joining stories with different artists different teams in fact Actually, I think the first long chapter I'm considering also having also being a mashup piece with different artists doing different pages. Even it's meant to be one character seeing the world from many different perspectives. So I think that would really suit that format well, and I'm really excited because I like the long form stories. I do, but I don't know. I feel I cut my teeth on shorter stories. I'm very comfortable writing an eight-page comic. I'm very comfortable writing like a four-page comic. I get these awesome little vignettes. Thankfully, Extraversal has been helping me scratch that ish, itch. I mean, I mean, it teaches you discipline. You know, like if you have only 10 issues to tell a chapter of Orb, you know, you've really got to balance the storytelling you know you need to tell people things while also having some action and I mean you can tell when you look back at the first year of Orb where it hadn't quite got the balance right yet I wasn't writing for that format I was writing a longer form story which I chopped up but having to write it in these short chunks meant you know like I said I had to shape up quickly and I think there was a marked improvement in year two and year three is already shaping up to be something amazing. I know that's vain, but I really do feel I've hit my stride there. And yeah, it's a combination of the awesome and the exposition. Maybe one day I'll, I don't know, I'll develop a, <laughs> a how-to book, the John Locke method of self-loathing and creativity. But I've often felt that stories always have to, there's like a Venn diagram between uh, two things are needed in a story. You need things which are cool, 
and there are things which are necessary. So a comic is always going to be made up of moments, and a moment can either be cool, or it can be necessary, or it can be both. So to elaborate, you need certain moments, you need certain scenes to drive a story forward. It's just, like, it's as fundamental a law, a law as gravity. Like, if you have a sense of story, if you have a sense of pacing and structure, you can see the gaps, you can see what's necessary. It's like, well, look, this character has to talk to this character. This character has, this has to happen. This has to happen because the story will fall apart if you don't have those moments. You could strip out everything else. It could be the most dry, boring, poorly executed moment. But as long as you have that scene, the story will work. It may not be great, but it will have a structure which you cannot fault. The cool parts are where it be... That's the flair. That's where it becomes... That's where it transitions from something pedestrian to something amazing. And you have to strike the balance between the two. If you have a story which is nothing but necessary moments, then I'm sorry, but you've just written a history book or you've just written a phone book even. It's like you will have the most amazing mechanical, like just digital structure you can imagine. It'd be perfectly coded but it will not set people's hearts on fire. You know, it will not kind of inspire them. That's where the cool comes in. And that's where you need moments of bombast. You need moments that make people sit up and go, yes, that's awesome. And that's the key with a story. You need to strike a balance between the two. Like I said, if you go entirely necessary, then I'm sorry, it's going to be boring. It'll be functional and accurate, but it will be boring. And the alternative is, if you go entirely cool, then all you get is style but no substance. You just get, you might as well just have a, a cycling series of images of explosions and guns and women in leather. Like, it means nothing. It has to mean something. There has to be a heart. And when I talk about necessary, I don't even mean it's entirely, it doesn't have to be entirely dry academic stuff. I mean, sometimes the necessary moments can also be the emotional moments. Like sometimes a story will fall apart if you don't have the emotional connection, if you don't have that moment. But you have to tell it with a bit of flair. And occasionally you'll hit the sweet spot right in the middle where something is both cool and necessary. And, you know, I think I'll talk about necessary, but it's like, there are moments where you, sometimes you look at a story and maybe, I don't know, maybe you read something or you see a movie and it's just, it's not quite satisfying and you can't quite place it. And you think, well, it was all right, but it just hasn't like grabbed me and you almost can't vocalize why it didn't work. With a, with a bit of training, like the more you the more media you consume, or indeed if you are a creator, the more you create, suddenly you gain a language to describe the things which are missing and you can see the gap. You can see what would have, what you would have needed to make it work. And sometimes you could be like, oh damn it, if only there'd been that one resolution between those two characters, or even if only there'd been another fight scene. Like sometimes a big moment of bombast can be necessary to make it work, you can see how it's broken. And it's like with many things, you only hear, you only notice it when something's going wrong, 
If it's working fine in the background, then your brain has no complaints. But that's really, I feel, he said, Jong's two cents that nobody asked for. I feel that's kind of like the point, the sweet spot we're all striving towards. It's a, if you're telling a story, you have to merge both the cool and the necessary, or you are not gonna, you're not gonna connect with people. And I'm hoping with book five that we'll have a lot of opportunities to strive for that. Whether or not we hit it, well, I guess will be for the audience to decide. But yeah, I'm really quite excited because, like I said, it's going to be go back to the anthology format. We're going to have a lot of variety, a lot of different artists, and we're going to follow a lot of different characters. We're going to go from a lot of different perspectives. But tying into what I was saying earlier about not being a slave to that chapterized format, everything is going to flow into everything. So even when the arc changes, even when the perspective changes, one scene will transition neatly into the next because there are no hard cuts here. It's only going to see print as one collected edition. And rather than continuing to pretend that it's ever going to see release in a format which may not even be that great anyway, we have to consider the book as a whole. So it's one glorious mess of everything kind of merging into each other. Not quite the White Album. <laughs> Maybe there's a bit more structure than that, but we'll see. And I, I've got to say, I love this kind of thing. This is my bread and butter. I love working on the structure. I love working on the possibilities. And with the new format, I'm also thinking of smarter ways of funding it so that we continue to pay everyone fairly for their work. And by having lots of different artists on it and not trying to produce... 174-page graphic novel in one go because that is a nightmare for anyone working at an independent level. I mean, the reason Man May God is taking so long is that it has been such an undertaking and we do not have the resources of Marvel or DC or Image. We have to work within our limitations if we're going to make great things as indie creators. And yeah, so parallel processing, lots of people working on small chunks at the same time because Independent creators and freelance artists do not have the time to work on something of that size. They need to keep their options open. And as a writer and as a publisher, we need to be fair. I need to be fair on them to kind of just get the best out of everyone and hopefully produce something we can all be proud of. So it's very exciting. I've also started serializing uh, Man Made God on the website, afterlifeinc.com. So if you weren't a Kickstarter backer, and if you like reading things online, there will be three pages of Man Made God going up a week from now until completion. And I'm hoping, he said, thinking smart, thinking new models, that by the time that finally runs its course, which will be some point in 2018, we will have already produced content for Volume 5. So the goal is to self-fund Volume 5 and to not have to turn to Kickstarter to fund the art because I love Kickstarter. I've talked about it at length before. I won't bore you bore you again, but it's not perfect. And the margins for independent comic creation are not in your favor unless you're only doing a print run. Kickstarter, very good for printing, less good for having to fund the production costs in advance because they are a nightmare for independent creators. Yeah, unless you're an artist, if you can draw your own stuff, more power to you. Run with that. Mm. 
And the final two things I'm going to say is that I've been with this recent bout of productivity. I've been ticking off some small jobs which have been niggling me for a while. So I am back on working on the physical Empyrean model, which I posted a few pictures on social media a while ago. And in fact, today I'm off to get supplies to keep working at that. I, can, I don't know if it will work. I can only hope it will work. But uh, it will certainly be a fun mess if it doesn't. And uh, the other great news is that myself and my good friend Ben Haith, who is an incredibly talented artist, are very close, very close indeed, to releasing a special project that we've been working on for a long time. I mean, Ben and I met way back, I think, in 2011. Mm. Around the time I was first going to conventions, like before I'd even uh, produced any Afterlife Inc., I had some work in progress for Dying to Tell, the first book. And we went to like, it was like the art, northern something, northern sequential art competition. And they announced for winners and Ben won. It was, it was incredible. And I was in the audience. And uh, as he was heading out, I kind of came up to him and I said, hey, look, um, I really liked your stuff. And if you want to work on a comic at some point, that'd be amazing. And and then it was like, hurry up and wait. And we, and mostly me, I think, but we just, we didn't work on it for ages. We didn't do anything because I think the format was against us. I was still struggling to think of a way to release it on the world. And this was in the early days of Afterlife Think as well. And I didn't know what was best. We then very near, and then a couple of years later, we very nearly got a publisher for it. We we met with them. We were, we went in, in person to their office. We had a lovely day and the whole team there were very enthusiastic about it. But sadly, it didn't come, It you know, it didn't come to pass. Uh, we, we worked on it for several months with them. And... Uh, you know, well, guess we'll never know the decisions behind closed doors in publishing circles. But, you know, they, they said that, you know, sadly, they had to cut back on a lot of their publishing. And there were a lot of titles in development, which they, they cancelled. And, uh, yeah, so we parted on good terms. It was a shame, but it just didn't come to be. And then finally, I mean, bear in mind, it's like six years later. We were like, let's just do it. Like, we'll do it as a webcomic. We will be masters of our own destiny and we will publish it ourselves and we'll have low overheads and we'll do a print edition after we've done a run on the web. And it is so nearly there. And Ben is just producing the most amazing work. Um, I'm being coy. I'm not giving it away. But it's going to be a slight departure from the normal stuff in that it will be all ages friendly. It will be uh, scientific in nature. It will be delving into uh, our mutual history in science. We were both science technicians when we we started on this project. And we're going to do essentially the kind of comic which I, as a 12-year-old boy, would have absolutely loved to read. And I can't wait to get it out there. It's going to be amazing. So yeah, I'm being coy for now, but you're very nearly be upon us. And yeah, like I said, can't wait. Um, so yeah, um, after I think volume four going to print in a couple of months, um, after I think volume four has now started digital serialization on the website, afterlife-inc.com, uh, extraversal issue 10 is going to print in June. Uh, what else is there working on the models and yeah, this new super secret new comic, 
will be launching at some point soon. We just got to work out when. But yeah, we're very nearly ready to go. So yeah, creative all time. And uh, I guess just to bring it full circle, when I was at this conference this week, uh, this higher education conference, I was able to meet one of my former bio biology professors from university. And I had to go up to him and catch him on the back foot and say, hey, I'm so sorry, you won't remember me. Uh, you taught me about 10 years ago. But I just want to say thank you because, you know, you're an amazing teacher. You were, you kicked my ass when it needed to be kicked and you taught us some pretty great things. And uh, I just want to say that while I did turn my back on biology and become an editor and writer, it is coming full circle because I am now publishing a comic about zoology for children. And I just want to thank you because most of what you taught me is going to be in that comic. And he he said he, should, he was great, actually. I doubt he remembered me because like, how many thousands of, t of students will he deal with in his career? But um, he said that I should absolutely um, share a comic with him when it's up and running. So something to look forward to. I should also finally say that uh, we have a title for Afterlife Inc. Volume 5. Um, I've been toying with what to call it for a while. I had an original roadmap for Afterlife Inc., which I came up with, oh good grief, about 10 years ago. And now, with Man May God, we're in that territory. We are now telling the stories which I had planned. Oh, Squirrel's back. Telling the stories which I'd had planned for so long. But of course, now they're very different. Now they're informed by very different experiences and you know I'm a very I'm a hopefully a better writer than I was back then and it's grown in ways I could never have imagined and now yeah we can't tell the stories as originally intended because this is not the same world it was like after I think is its own thing so yeah we're both on and off the track basically I know where we're ending up the destination and the ending has always been setting stone but yeah this is a new and fun and unexpected chapter with some similarities to what was originally planned. But yeah, it's going to be called Glory Days. Um, I've been toying with what to call it for a while. Like I I've, I have, I had, I was wondering to do a Bowie thing and call it Golden Years and it wasn't quite fitting for me. But uh, I was listening to a, a pulp album at work and I love pulp to bits I love the kind of balance between that bittersweet balance between cheery like upbeat tunes and then this kind of quiet desperation at its heart like they're always bittersweet there's always a sadness behind the joy and like a, a kind of irony which I, I love about pulp and uh, there's a song called glory days which really just cemented it because there's always there'd always been this lyric which I thought I'd misheard, and I decided to finally look it up. And right then and there, I had the quote which would kind of um, define the book, and it just couldn't have been more perfect. It was um, these glory days can take their toll, so catch me now before I turn to gold. And right then and there, we had a book. So yeah, thank you for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoy your day. I hope you enjoy your coffee and I'll see you again in two weeks.